Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine had run out, the mother of Jesus said to them, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine. And he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And, a manifest, and it manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, please pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask now that as we take a closer look at this miracle, this first miracle that Jesus performed, that we would be in awe at who he is and what he has done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that you know about me by now, it's probably that you know I love football. And I love the Denver Broncos more than anyone else. Not the Dallas Cowboys. But I love football. And my, I can't get enough of it. My favorite movie, or one of my favorites at least, is The Blind Side. I'm sure a, lot, a number of you have seen it, but it's a true story about a young man who is adopted by a wonderful family, becomes an all-star athlete, and is recruited to Old Miss to play football, and then eventually he goes on to play in the NFL. It's extremely uplifting. It is definitely worth a watch. But there's a sequence of scenes in that movie that are so interesting in which a number of actual college coaches play themselves in the movie and go through their entire recruiting speech trying to get this young man, Michael Orr, to go to their schools. And I mean, they get a number of big name coaches. They get guys like Ed Origin. I'm sure I didn't pronounce it right, but they get Ed from Old Miss, Coach O. They get Tommy Tuberville, Auburn War Eagles. I know there's a number of Auburn folks over here. They get my favorite Lou Holtz from the University of South Carolina. But it almost didn't come together because there was one coach they wanted more than any other. They wanted to get the greatest college football coach of all time. They wanted to get Nick Saban from Alabama. But the problem was they kept calling and calling and calling and Nick Saban wasn't answering and wasn't returning his call. And I didn't know this, but about a month ago, on the Rich Eisen show, which is a sports talk show, Rich Eisen was interviewing the director. 
And he was asking about how they got all these coaches and he was telling this story about Nick Saban not returning his calls. Well, there were, you know, Nick Saban is not someone that you tell him what to do. That's not his personality. He's like a general. He's like Patton. Nick Saban is the kind of guy that when you watch him coaching his players or talking to people in press conferences or in interviews, you can just tell he commands the room. He's in charge and what he says goes. They are having such a hard time getting him to call them back. But Nick Saban met his match. You see, the mother of Michael Orr, the adopted mother of Michael Orr, is a spitfire of a woman. She is so kind, she's so gracious, she's friendly and warm, and of course, um, just so sweet. But she is also the matriarch of her family. She is the mama bear. And when she found out from the director that they were looking at casting someone to play Nick, this was unacceptable. And so when she was on the phone with the director, she said, you don't worry about Coach Saban, you'll hear from him in a few days. And she hung up. <laughs> True story, two days later, the director's phone was ringing, and guess who was on the other end of the phone call? It was Nick Saban. And Nick Saban said, sir, I have talked to Miss Leanne Tui. And she has instructed me to call you and offer my help and assistance however you might need it. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been in the room to have heard the conversation between Lee Ann Tui and Nick Saban? I sure would have. I don't know if it was something in the way that she spoke to him. I don't know if it's the look that she gave him. I don't know if it's the cadence she used. But whatever it was, it was clear that this was not a negotiation and that this was not to be done with protest. Nick Saban agreed to do it. I think there's something there in that kind of dynamic, something lost in the body language, something lost in the way that the words were spoken that we don't get to see that caused Nick to agree. I think there's something like that in our passage this morning. But we're going to have to wait a few minutes before we get to it. Now, Jesus has kicked off his public ministry. He's been baptized, the heavens parted, the Holy Spirit descended, the voice of God spoke out, awesome scene. And then Jesus, like David preached last week, went into the wilderness for 40 days. He faced all sorts of temptations and trials at the hands of Satan, and he comes out victorious. And then Jesus begins to gather to himself all of his disciples. So things are off to a hot start. And between his baptism and the time that he goes to the cross to die for our sins, there's a lot that needs to be done. And so Jesus is on the move and he's got, you know, he's got Andrew and John and Peter, James, Philip and Nathaniel. Those six are gathered together and he starts to make his way up north to Galilee, near Nazareth where he had grown up. And then everything comes to a full stop because he's invited to a wedding at Cana. And likely because Cana is so close to Galilee, we think, or to Nazareth, we think, this is probably someone who is a close friend of Jesus's. It might even be a relative of Jesus's. And so, of course, it seems, you know, obvious that he would stop to go to a wedding. But we need to understand that a wedding that Jesus goes to isn't like a wedding you or I would go to. It's not like the wedding I have with my beautiful bride, Courtney, when we got married in South Carolina. 
You know, I remember all the planning that went into it, you know, for the months building up in your, in your engagement, all the things that have to be done, like things I never really thought I'd have to think about, decorations, invitations, save the dates, you know, songs, vows, you know, different venues, premarital counseling, photographers, all those things that go into planning a wedding, all the things that, you know, Chris, Chris is going through right now, our new pastoral intern that he's having to think through and wrestle with. Well, when the day finally comes, you've had months and months and months of planning, and then there's a short, it's a beautiful, wonderful, but short 45-minute service, and that's probably a long service for a wedding. I remember, like, standing up front and Courtney coming down the aisle, being so excited, and then, like, in a blink of an eye, she was, like, leading me back down the aisle, and I had a ring on my finger. It was so quick. And then by the time your reception's done and you're going on your honeymoon, your life has totally changed. See, when Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana, it's not a one-day thing. It's seven to 14 days of feasting and celebrating and singing and dancing. So his public ministry, it really, it stops for a minute. And here Jesus is at this wedding. And when he's at this wedding, a crisis arises. They've run out of wine. And this would have been a major embarrassment, a major oversight. Because see, the groom who's supposed to plan for the wedding, just like Courtney and I had planned for ours, he's responsible for making sure there's enough provisions for all of the celebrations. And so when Mary comes and she says, Jesus, they're out of wine, Jesus does what only he can do. He saves the celebrations. He does his first miracle and he turns the water into wine. It really is an awesome, awesome moment. But the question is, why was this Jesus' first miracle? It wasn't just that he was doing this to save uh, the wedding. Jesus was doing this because it was meant to be a sign of something more important. It was an outward expression of a deeper spiritual truth. And if we look at the details carefully, what we see in verse 6 is telling us why Jesus did this miracle and what exactly it's pointing to. You see, at the wedding, there were six stone vessels that had been set apart holding water for the rites of Jewish purification. You might be wondering, what are the rites of Jewish purification? Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, God had provided specific ceremonial laws for the people of Israel that they were to practice at different sorts of ceremonies. And that, you know, this also includes things like the kosher laws of what they were allowed to eat and not eat. And so these jars that had been set aside for, uh, you know, the Jewish rites of purification, they weren't there just so that the people would come in and wash their hands before spending time with everyone else. These were actually jars that were there that when they washed their hands, it signified that they had been set apart by their God, that they were being spiritually cleansed by Yahweh God Almighty. And so the purpose of it was to set them apart as God's people, and to show others that they were different from them, that they belonged to Yahweh. And so when Jesus is doing this miracle and he has these servants fill the jars up to the brim, he's saying something very specific. 
He's saying, now I've come and these ritual and ceremonial laws have been fulfilled. They're coming to an end. And now he is going to provide a better way of purification. Purification that's going to come in his blood at the cross. And so in a sense, this is foreshadowing what is going to take place in his ministry and for all of eternity. That his blood is what provides perfect, permanent cleansing. And so Jesus does this miracle and it is awesome. And turns out it's the best wine anyone has ever tasted. That was the purpose of this miracle. It was a sign that displays his glory and his divinity and it causes the disciples to believe in him. But I think there's another detail in our text that is extremely interesting. And I think it is a very personal and it speaks to us on an intimate level about how, who Jesus is as a person. So we see him in his divinity, but also in this miracle, there is an element of who he is as a person that sometimes we overlook. Because Jesus is condescending. He's stooping low and showing his love and his care at this wedding. So have you ever wondered how we got to the point of Jesus doing this miracle? What were the circumstances going on? Mary comes with this problem. She says to Jesus, we've run out of wine. And Jesus, his response is very interesting. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. If you're reading that just on the surface, what that seems like it's saying is Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do anything about this. This is not the time for this. But what does Mary do next? She tells the servants to do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. So what, what happened? Why did Jesus do the miracle if he said he wasn't going to do it? I think there's something that's lost in translation. Just like in the illustration earlier. I think there's something lost in translation between the way that Mary and Jesus are interacting with each other. What is it that is so concerning to Mary? It's the fact that this would be so extremely embarrassing and shameful if the wedding ceremonies were cut short. You know, if we put ourselves in this context just a little bit, if we try to think about what it would be like if something went wrong at one of our weddings, I think it helps. You know, recently we had a wedding here at Providence. And it just so happened I was working the sound for this wedding. And if any of you have been here long enough, you know that our sound system is not the most reliable. You've seen me get up probably a number of times and check with the sound guys to see what's going on. And we have solidarity, Teddy and I, with knowing how difficult this can be. Well, at this particular wedding, I came in for the rehearsal and I did an extensive sound check. Everything worked perfect, right? Everything was perfect. During the rehearsal, Allison Averett was here with me. We used the microphones for the entire rehearsal. Every question that was asked, every instruction that was given, it was crystal clear. Came in the day of the wedding, another extensive sound check, good to go. Before the Lord, you know where this is going. Before the Lord, the second I unmuted the microphone, 
with the entire wedding party up front and the minister beginning to read God's word and to pray and instruct the congregation, it was cutting in and out like it never has before. David Ray was sitting right back here in the back. I looked at him from the sound booth. He had a look on his face I hope I never see again. (laughs) He also looked at me and I think he saw a very similar face that he hopes to have never seen again. So embarrassing. Thankfully, during the first hymn, we changed the microphone and everything was fine. But can you imagine if it kept cutting in and out and we couldn't have resolved that problem? Think about how embarrassing it would have been for that bride and groom as they were trying to repeat their vows and the mic was cutting in and out. Or what it would have been like when the minister was preaching his sermon. Or maybe even worse, when they sat down to watch the video of their wedding for the first time together and all the sound was screwed up. Right? Or when they attended a wedding with friends and people reminded them of what happened. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. You see, if, if they had cut these ceremonies short, this would have come up over and over and over again. Extremely embarrassing. And while we don't know for a fact that Mary had a part to play in like the catering, what we do know is that it seems she and Jesus were close to this couple who were being married. And so the shame not only would have been on them, but it would have been on Mary as well. And so the question is, why does Jesus, when he says he's not going to do this miracle at this time, decide to do it anyways? I think it's because he loves his mother. I think that Jesus sees the kind of pain and embarrassment this would have caused her and this would have caused this couple who was being married. And because it was within his power to do so, he wasn't going to let that happen. Isn't that a wonderful thing about who Jesus is? That says a lot about who he is as a person. This is the kind of thing that when we slow down and we look closely at what John has recorded, we are being shown a side of Jesus that is immensely encouraging. That he wouldn't let his mother go through something like that means the world. You know, there's, there's the old adage that when a girl is looking for a husband, she should observe or watch how the man treats and cares and loves his mother because that is how he will treat and care and love her. We are called the bride of Christ. In the way in which Jesus treats and cares and shows compassion and love to his mother is the way that he will treat us too. Isn't that wonderful? And I'll tell you this, what this makes me want to do, this makes me want to bring my cares and concerns to him when something is going on. You know, the Bible tells us, cast your cares on him Because he cares for you. That's exactly what this is showing us. Mary is concerned and has a care and she presents it to Jesus. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do. 
And she doesn't know exactly what he's going to do. But boy, does he act in a mighty way. And he will do the same for us. It might not always be what we want or what we expect or what we think he should do, but we can know with assurance that whatever's best for us, he will provide. You know, so when we find ourselves at work struggling with anxiety or difficult situations, or we're having problems in our marriages or with our relationships, when we don't know what the future holds, when we're concerned about what's going to happen next, when we are dealing with our kids and day in and day out, things can seem hard and difficult. Jesus cares about those things and he wants us to bring them to him because he can provide what is best, much like the wine, which was the best. He can provide us with exactly what help we need. And so all that we need to do is ask him to help us. I think that that is just so beautiful and wonderful. That's the kind of savior we have. That's the savior that we worship. And you know that if he was willing to die the kind of death that he did to bear the weight of our sins, then he cares about every part of our life. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the ways in which he has shown his love and care for us. And we would ask that you would help us by your spirit to turn to him more and more in every hour of need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.